Hello and welcome to Getaway Day. This is episode 104. My name is Gautam, his name is Mason, and today we are going to be talking about um, the Oakland A's and their situation with uh, moving out of that city potentially to Las Vegas and the the various ramifications of that and 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 even some discussion about um, MLB expansion in the coming years. Before we do that, um, we're going to get into some interesting stuff that happened over the last week of baseball. Mason uh, held down the fort for me last week, so thank you for doing that. You did a great job, and um, happy to be back. How are you doing today? Doing great. I'm not as refreshed as someone who just got back from Argentina, but I'm doing pretty good. So. Yeah, we just kind of been chilling, playing MLB the show. Uh, I need to start streaming it here a little bit. Um, and just kind of hanging out, watching some ball. Been watching, watched a little bit of the uh, NBA uh, NBA playoffs here this week, too. So trying to branch out, watch some other sports. It's a good time. All right. Um, let's get started with uh, talking about some home run hitters, the players of the week. Uh, in both leagues, Max Muncie and Adelis Garcia. So Max Muncie, he's on the paternity list starting today. But even before he got his dad's strength, he went on an absolute home run binge, and he hit 10 home runs in his last 13 games. Um, The thing about Muncie is we all know that he's got this kind of power. He is leading the major leagues with 11 home runs right now. Um. He showed the power before he's had like 35 home run seasons in the past. It seemed like in 2022, he really struggled out of the gate. And um, I think that was all just related to the injury that he suffered. If you remember on the last day of the 2021 season, he got run into uh, at first base and he just like hurt his elbow really badly. And that lingered basically through half of the, 2022 season he got off to a dreadful start and he kind of was doing some weird um compensation things with his swing and it just was not working out for him second half of the season he seemed to work those things out and got back to the max muncie we know um yeah just to throw a few stats out there to back up what you said like yeah he's hit 35 homers three times 2018 2019 and 2021 where he hit 36 which is career high um 2020 he went off for 12 homers in that 60 game season like he's a dude that is not uh not shy of the long ball by any means i mean hell he told madison bumgarner to go get one out of the ocean so you don't do that if you're like a Shane Robinson type player that hits one home run in your career. So, yeah, that's not Max Muncie. So, yeah, or just this past weekend against the Cubs in Chicago in, in cold conditions, he hit four home runs in the four game series. So um, I, I'm just I, I want to see if this guy can I, I think he can easily do it again. He's well on his way to another 35 home run season. Maybe there's a 40 homer season this year. Yeah, and something that I kind of want to start looking into here in a couple more weeks once we have um, a little bit more data to back it, Um, because as we've kind of talked about, and as I talked about last week, like it's still early to look at stuff that's long-time trends unless you're comparing it to other short stints throughout history sort of thing, kind of like we did last week with the Steels. But I, 
something feels different about the ball this year. Like it, it just, it feels like it's a little bit more juice this year. The ball's kind of been flying. I mean, we've got two guys with 10 homers already this year, a couple guys with nine, couple guys with eight, whole bunch of guys with six. And last year we only had what four players that hit 40 total. So this feels like we're going to pass that and have the potential to have about 10 guys that are over that 40 home run range. So it feels like something is a little bit off compared to last year's ball compared to last year. Yes. But we've seen stuff like this before. It's not like, well, and I don't think we're like at 2019 levels is what I'm saying. Yeah. But my point being that baseball said that they weren't messing with it again this year yet. It seems entirely different again. Yeah. So, Um, and, and just one more thing about the, the Dodgers, like the Dodgers really need Muncie because it just feels like their lineup is not what it has been in, in recent years. It, like I was just looking at their lineup. I tweeted this from the getaway day account, like their lineup today after Betts and Freeman, they've got Jason Hayward, James Outman, Miguel Vargas, David Peralta, Michael Bush making his major league debut, Chris Taylor, Austin Barnes. That's not like the Dodgers lineups we're used to. No. Not at all. And part of that is um, paternity leave. Part of it is injury. Part of it is that they let some guys go and didn't replace them. So it's like there's three different things that are all playing into that. Some of them they could have controlled. Some of them they can't. Some will be fixed. Some won't. But it, yeah, this this Dodgers team just feels so much different than the last couple of years. Like I'm not sold that this Dodgers team is the best team in that division at all. And right now. Yeah. They're not right now. They're in second place. So are we kind of seeing the end of that long reign of, I mean, technically their, their streak of consecutive um, division titles is over after the season that they got 104 wins and got second, yeah, the, the 107 um, wins or whatever with the giants. Yeah. yeah. So uh, technically that streak is over, but it feels like that level of dominance is gone now. So very well could be. Not, not that they're a bad team. I, I very well, I very much believe that they're still a playoff team, but they're not like the record-setting teams that they've been the last couple of years. There's a reason I phrased it: um, their string of dominance in uh-huh. in the division, not yeah. their string of of being good. So. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but let's just move on for now. Um, Talk about Adelise Garcia, who had a crazy game last week. Uh, The Rangers were wearing their uh, City Connect jerseys. I don't know if you have any thoughts on those. I don't understand them. I need to actually look at what they mean. Like all the different stuff with them. They've got a cool look to them. They're they're very different. And And I I feel like that's a good thing for those jerseys. It is. I just haven't like actually looked at them enough to go or to decide if I like them or not. I know that they're different. That is very clear. Yeah. <laughs> so in in those uh, threads, Adelis Garcia hit three home runs by the fifth inning, and then he followed it up by uh, hitting two more doubles. Were they playing the A's that game though? Yes, I believe so. So yeah, that that's uh, we have to mention that, but. Amazing performance that's only been done four times in uh, baseball history now. It's all happened in the last like four years or uh, seven years, seven years. Yeah. 
So Chris Bryant in 16, Matt Carpenter in 18, and uh, random McGee from the Braves that other year. Or time. Alex Dickerson on the uh, Giants the in Giants. 2020. Yeah, yeah, that one. So, so yeah, I, I feel like with Adelise Garcia, people have been saying, oh, the regression's going to hit. This guy's got awful plate discipline. He strikes out too much. But, I mean, now we're three years running where the guy is just consistently an amazing baseball player. He does so many things well. Why are we focusing on, you know, the the small weaknesses in his game? They're they're not hindering him. He's an incredibly productive player and incredibly valuable to the Rangers. That, I think that's a fair critique before he like truly breaks out. Because it's always like a, is he going to be able to repeat it? But once he repeats it the first time, then you go, okay, maybe this is a thing. When he does it the third time, that argument's out the window. Right, yeah. Like, you it's just got to shut up. Success, like, yeah. Clearly, he is a really good player, and his strikeout rate is not really that high. Right now, so far this year, it's only at 21%, which is actually really good. That's a really great good. point, and, and that's three last years year, now running that he's cut that rate down. Yep. Last year, it was 28. 2021, it was 31. Like, that's a high strikeout rate, but it's not as high as some of the other guys in the league. So why are we looking at this guy and saying it's a problem, but we're not looking at some of these other guys and saying, well, their strikeout rate is unsustainable. Doesn't make any sense. For sure. It's just yeah. kind of because he's on the Rangers. People just don't want them to be good. They don't understand that they could be good and have good players. First place, like, Texas Rangers. Okay. So what else we got today? So, Max Scherzer, that was uh, something that happened this week. I'll let you uh, take the lead on that one. Yeah, so this entire thing was confusing. So Max Scherzer was checked in the third inning for uh, sticky stuff, as they they do regularly now. He was told his hands were too sticky and he needed to go wash them. This is something that happened like a, the week before with Domingo Herman uh, with the Yankees, or just a couple days before. Um and so he went in, washed his hands with alcohol um, in front of supposedly in front of someone from MLB. Um, and he went back out on the field. They told him to get a new glove. He did. Then he came out in the fourth and they checked him again and they said his hands were too sticky, three times stickier than anything they've ever felt before. So they ejected him. Which, when you're ejected for sticky stuff, you automatically get a fine and a 10-game suspension with that, according to the new policies that were put in place two years ago, 2021. Um, then Scherzer comes out after the game and is talking about it, and everyone agreed that he was using pine tar and he was sweaty. Both things that are allowed in baseball. Um, but... Uh oh shoot, who was the ump? Phil Cuzzy. Uh, Phil Cuzzy yeah. said that it was three times stickier than anything we've ever felt before. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know how you can determine it's three times stickier. You could go, hey, this is sticky. Yeah, I get that. It's a yep. qualitative thing. Um, but he ejected him over that, but then the week before, Domingo Herman was allowed to continue playing. Was that with and the same umpire? No. Okay. 
Phil Cuzzy is the only umpire who has ever ejected somebody for sticky stuff. He has ejected all three of the people that have been tossed. Who were those other guys? Was it like Michael Pineda or something? Hector Neris, I think. Oh, wait. Was it him or? Yeah, the first one was with Seattle. Oh, I I remember who it was. It was was Hector Santiago. Hector Santiago. My bad. I got the Hector right. Um, And then the second one, I think, was Michael Pineda. And Phil Cuzzy threw out all of them. Um, Scherzer was expected to appeal the suspension, but found out that it would be just going straight to the commissioner who would be the arbitrator um, or the appeal. It would not go to a neutral arbitrator to do this. And so he just decided instead of fighting it and delaying it, he's just going to get it over and done with because he knows it's going to be upheld. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, but I think it's like it was kind of like a team thing because the Mets are playing with the 25 man roster. They're literally like playing a man down because of this suspension. So it's not like Scherzer wants to hurt the team. Like he seems like a guy that would would very be okay with appealing a suspension if it didn't affect his team. But uh, the other, the, the one other thing about it is you mentioned that the rosin and the sweat is legal but it's legal up to a point there. There is written in the rules that you cannot use an excessive amount of those substances. And so, so that's like the case for um, case against Scherzer essentially. Yeah. I think the part that bothers me is if that's the case, it needs to be defined. But how do you define that? You can't be measuring sweat units on the field there. I don't know, but at the same time, who's to make the decision that it's excessive? Right. Because you can't measure at this point. You can't measure excessive. And clearly Phil Cuzzy has a low tolerance for the sticky hands, I guess. So the what I would say that we could do, we have the ability to track spin rates. That's something that we have with StatCast. They have access to it in real time at the major league offices. Before they eject someone, they need to see if their spin rate is out of line with what it usually is. If it's not, then I, I, I it believe doesn't that matter how that's open, it is. opening up a, a, a big can of worms because what if the pitcher is just off that day and they're throwing two miles per hour slower? Their their spin rate is also going to be dropping. So. Yeah, but if it's if it's dropping, I don't think it's as big a deal because your spin rate's not going to drop if you're using sticky stuff. Okay, it's going to go up. Okay, so counterexample: if 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 you spiked your velocity two miles per hour for a certain start, the weather's warmer, you're feeling better as the season progresses, and then your spin rate correspondingly also spikes, and you're well, getting I'm thrown so- out of the game for doing. Nothing. I'm saying it's a combination. It's like if they go and they say, "Well, your hand's really sticky," then you check. You don't you don't check first or you don't check spin rates first. The spin rates is just to basically verify if the umpire is just being an asshat. Okay. Because like it's not ideal, but it's better than what we have. Because Scherzer's spin rates were exactly in line with every other start that he's had this year in that start. If you look at that, then you go, okay, so it doesn't really seem all that different. No one else has thrown him out and he's been checked X number of times. So what was the deal with him washing his hands with alcohol though? Uh, because if you wash it with water, it's not going to actually get it off. 
So, so you go and rinse it with alcohol, uh, like so, isopropyl in front of, so he said that he was doing exactly what the MLB officials were telling him to do. And then he uh, still got tossed. And, and, you know, uh, David Cohn on Sunday night baseball did a demonstration of like mm-hmm. washing, washing off his hand with alcohol. Then he touched the ball and the ball was stuck to his hand. So the alcohol is absolutely like playing into the stickiness of Scherzer's hand. I think. I, I mean, maybe, but he did it in front of a major league official. If that's how I, they tell him to do it, like, right. It's kind yeah. of on them. It is. Yeah. They should know about that so, kind of reaction that could happen. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It the entire situation was dumb. I he shouldn't have been tossed. Period. And then the fact that he was, and this is just kind of people going back and forth. Like I don't know. This it's stupid. I hate yeah. this. <laughs> Can right. we move on? Let's move on to something more fun. Uh, the return of Fernando Tatis um, last Thursday. Over so, five. Over five. He did hit a home run. He so he's on the board here. Um, this is a huge deal for baseball as a whole because this is a player that a couple of years ago was the best player in the league. He was playing like the best player in the league. So it's really important that he gets back and and hopefully we see him return to that star level. Um, it's going to be huge for the Padres. Yeah. Um, the Padres right now are kind of underperforming. Like they're 500, but their offense has been one of the least potent offenses in the league outside of Miami and Washington and Kansas city. Like they've only put up 92 runs in the year. This is an offense that when you look at it, you expect this to be one of the most potent offenses in the league. So they need some kind of a catalyst. Tatis coming back and performing would be that catalyst that might help Bogarts, might help Machado actually start getting their bats going and get this team to first place where I think everyone's expecting them to be. Uh-huh. Um, Definitely. The, the guy you didn't mention there is Soto. He's really struggled. We might have to dig into that a little bit and see what's what's been going on basically the last two years now where yeah. he just hasn't been the same guy. Well, the other part with Tatis coming back is I was curious how much people were going to accept him being back after the, the PED suspension and the the broken wrist that he broke in two different motorcycle. Cra- it, it just felt like everyone was incredibly disappointed in him and almost kind of over it. I think now that he's done his time, he's come back. I feel like fans are not fans of San Diego aren't really mad at him as much anymore. He's kind of served his time, taken his punishment. The rest of the league, I think, might still have something a little bit. They're going to give him the cold shoulder for a bit. I imagine he's going to get some booze. He's going to get some. He's going to get some nasty. Uh statements from fans as he travels. But I think ultimately this is probably, this is a really good thing for MLB. If he learns his lesson, doesn't do it ever again. I think he's pretty much setting himself on track to get back to where he was pre injury and pre suspension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and yeah, we'll see how long it takes him to get back in his groove. I know he was just dominating triple a and in, in his rehab assignment, yeah. but 
he is dealing with like some pretty severe injuries on top of not having actually played for a, a while now. Yeah. And this last one about the Cubs who had a uh, perfect game uh, attempt by pretty unlikely guy, Drew Smiley, who had a no hitter perfect game against the Dodgers going until the eighth inning. And then it ended in a funny way. Yeah. So there was a, it was a swinging bunt, right? Like it wasn't a true bunt. It was not like a true bunt. Yeah. It was just like a really weak screw. 37 miles per hour off the bat of David Peralta to the third base side. It was like where you would want to place your sacrifice bunt essentially. Yeah. And <laughs> Smiley goes over, goes down to get it. Jan Gomes goes over, goes down to get it. Gomes realizes that Smiley was was going to get it. Uh, and so he tries to back off and get out of the way. Well, when he does it, he runs right into Smiley's butt and tackles him on accident. Yeah. And David Peralta's safe. It's ruled a hit. Ends both the perfecto and the no-hit bid. And just honestly, it it reminded me of like all the terrible Cubs teams. It just seemed like something that would have happened on those teams in a non-perfect game situation. Right. And so to see it here, it it was so funny and yet so disappointing. (laughs) Right. And, and it was such a tough play too. It would have been so difficult for Smiley, the left-handed pitcher to make that, like field that ball and turn around and throw to first and, and both, gomes and and smiley they wanted it so badly they wanted to keep this perfect game intact so they're both charging at the ball essentially and running into each other so yeah i mean it ended up a one hitter that the cubs won 13 nothing and um you know fans were absolutely going crazy that was that was like right reminded me of uh the good years of cubs baseball a half decade ago now um but what was the what was uh, David Ross's quote afterwards. Oh yeah, they asked him if uh, he was going to keep going with Smiley, even though his pitch count was going high. If he still had the the perfect game going into the ninth, he said, "Yeah, I would have rode him harder than Jan did." I love that NSFW. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is Gotta NSFW. Love Rossi. Uh, yeah, podcast here. Um, yeah, so. Cubs are playing well, and uh, that was like a really, you know, that was like pretty much a perfect game other than being technically perfect. Like from the Cubs side, they scored 13 runs against the Dodgers in a home game on a Friday afternoon. I mean, what's better than that? So clearly they're in first place, right? (laughs) I mean, NL Central is doing some good stuff so far. Uh, are you sure i've not seen it (laughs) (laughs) you've been watching the wrong teams that's your problem yeah so the cubs are in third the brewers are in second and the surprise of mlb season maybe uh to this point is that the pittsburgh pirates are in first place with a 16 and 7 record and question to you is what is going on here and is this something that we need to believe in Yes and no. I think there's some stuff here that is very real, very true. Positive moves for the Pirates from where they've been. They are not 
a 100 win team, which is the pace that they're on right now. I mean, they've got a 696 win percentage, which I think puts them at like 105 wins. Roughly. They're they're not that guy, pal. They're just not that guy. <laughs> yeah, you just um, can't see it on this roster. Like, OK, so like if you told me at the beginning of the season, uh, after 20 some games, O'Neill Cruz is going to be. Uh, no, if I if I told you the Pirates would be 16 and seven at this point in the season. You would say like, oh, O'Neill Cruz is breaking out. Uh, Key Brian Hayes is like had his breakout season, but no, I, neither of those things I, are true. I also would have laughed at you because I know what this pitching staff looks like. Right? Yeah. So because this is of, not a team that you look at and say, "This is a great defensive team. This is a great pitching team. This is a great hitting team." You really don't say that about any of the facets. Looking at the hitting you would think, okay, this is the part that's going to come around first because you do have Cabrian Hayes. You do have um, O'Neill Cruz. You do have Brian Reynolds. You have Jack Sawinski, who was actually really solid last year, and he's continuing to play at that level. You brought back Andrew McCutcheon, who is still a good hitter. Like, you have a lot of guys on this team from a hitting perspective that you look at individually and go, oh, that's a good piece. You put enough good pieces together, you have a good lineup. That's how that works. So I could see this Pirates team putting up 111 runs right now, being kind of right there in that upper tier of teams as far as runs scored. That kind of makes sense to me. But that's not how they're winning these games. They're winning these games because they've only given up 86 runs. That part I've not figured out. Right, Like. Yeah. This is a this is a rotation that's rocking out. Mitch Keller is their is their ace right now. Not really an ace type, but he broke out last year. He's still pitching really well so far. He's got a three seven six ERA so far this year. Uh, three six four. No, sorry, uh, three six four ERA so far this year. Um, and he's pitched really solid. Um, you've got Johan Oviedo, former Cardinals prospect and and pitcher. Um, and he's at 25 years old is finally having the breakout that we all wanted him to have in St. Louis. And he, he's pitched a 222 ERA and four starts. Like he has been flat out dominant for the Pirates so far, uh, including dominating the Cardinals, I might add. Um, you've got Roency Contreras, who's uh, kind of a young uh, rookie, second year. I'm not really sure what you consider him. He's not been phenomenal, but he's not been terrible. Then you get to the two old guys that I think before the year, everyone's like, well, these are the two guys that they're coming in as innings eaters. And I think the pirates are going to rely on them as being their best starters as well. And Vince Velasquez and rich Hill, bro. Vince Velasquez is 12 years younger than rich Hill. He's not yeah, old. But rich. Hill, rich Hill's like <laughs> 70. So that, that makes Vince Velasquez 58. Yeah. So. Rich Hill is the oldest player in the league. Yeah. Um, well, no, it just feels like Vince Velasquez has been around forever yeah. and he's over the hill yeah. and not very good, which is not the case. Like, he's That's only 31. That's absolutely true. That well, he's not very good. The fact that he's doing this is yes. really surprising. It it reminds me of second half um, Jose Quintana last year. Oh, but Vince Velasquez has never demonstrated, like, any prolonged success in his career. So I true. don't see that continuing. Um, this is only this is only five starts and he's in a three, seven, six ERA like he's not been that amazing. 
So like right. maybe this is a reasonable thing for him to do. Be around a four, slightly sub four ERA guy, eat some innings. What if I keep... told you what Vince Velasquez's career ERA was? What would you suppose it is? Four two eight. Nope. You're giving him way too much credit. His career ERA four seven two. Four eighty nine. Oh shit. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. <Not super> work. <laughs> It, wait, so he's been pitching in the majors since he was 23, right? Uh, yeah, he's been around for a while. He, he Yeah, he came up with uh, Houston in 2015 when he was 23. So he he's just one of those guys. Like, wow. he's not a good pitcher. Like, I don't know how to say it any way, other way. He's never been good. He's just hung around. Yeah, his walk rate is really ballooned. Like, he's still walking 10% of batters this year. His strikeout rate is not very good. It's 23%. Like, he's getting really lucky so far from a BABIP standpoint. I mean, teams are only BABIPing 254 against him. So, like, yeah, it it doesn't feel quite real. I don't, this is not something that's going to. What you said just there, like that may represent what we're seeing with the whole Pirates team as a whole. It does not feel real because we're not finding anything here that's like, oh, yeah, this is a very legitimate improvement that they made. You know, they they went out and they got Carlos Santana. They got uh, Andrew McCutcheon. Some of the they brought in Connor Joe, who's been their best hitter so far. Connor Joe has been amazingly good. And they've sort of like done a lot of platooning and and matchup stuff that's really worked out so far and those are like really cool things uh but i just don't think they have like the base level of talent to like sustain this for any length of season other than this short these short stretches now what i will say is i feel fairly confident that this team can win 72 games 75 games maybe like by the end of the season, this is not a 100-loss Pirates team. This no. is better than that. Derek Shelton just got an extension. And, like, I think that's kind of showing that they're looking at this and they kind of see that there's improvement here. And they want to keep seeing what Derek Shelton can do. And he's done a fairly good job with what they've given him, which is almost nothing. Uh-huh. So, like... Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, if we, if we attack this from a completely different perspective, right now, if you're a Pirates fan... You got to be like super excited. They just extended Brian Reynolds, who's their best player, for eight years, and he got the biggest contract in Pirates history. Like that's that's It'll, progress, right? For a team only that never spends only one hundred and six million. Yeah, for a team that never spends any money in free agency, they don't re-sign their actual good players. They just end up trading them away. To actually now have extended both Key Brian Hayes. And Brian Reynolds, that's just awesome for them. And probably O'Neill Cruz, once he comes back, if he starts playing well, I'm guessing he'll get an extension as well. So, absolutely, yeah. So, if you're a you're Pirates fan, like you've had so much bad baseball the last like forever, basically. I mean, that, really, since 2014, when the last time they made it they, to the was they, 13 well, or 14? They made it in 15 as well. They had three oh, 15 years, to the wild card game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that was the last good Pirates team was 2015. And, and then I think yeah, they pretty much immediately went to 90-something lost season after that. Right, and the three before those three good years they had, right, 
they hadn't had a winning season since 1992 or something. I think it was 21 years. Yeah. So, so. if you're a Pirates fan, you take whatever stretches of good baseball you can you can get. Yeah. Even if it's a month, you yeah, take it, it. It counts, yeah. So. Okay. So that's this week in baseball. Anything else you got before we move on to another uh, very pathetic team? No, I think let's move to the other pathetic team. Okay, this one's a little bit more depressing than the Pirates right now. That's that's saying a lot. <laughs> so I we're mean, talking not really. about... We just talked up the Pirates for an entire we did, segment. We did. we did, yes. So Oakland A's. So the, the what what we know is that John Fisher, the owner of the A's, has agreed to purchase 49 acres in Las Vegas. Um, they've got a $1.5 billion stadium project, which really has no detailed plans or anything. Um, he's looking for $500 million from the government. And, and the big takeaway from just those things that I've mentioned here is that this is a business play. Oakland is not shown the willingness to give Fisher what he's looking for, which is a lot of money, a lot of public um, funding for his new stadium and surrounding ballpark area. Las Vegas is more likely to give him the money, at least on the surface. We think that Um, the Oakland mayor has said that the negotiations to keep the A's in Oakland are over at this time. I am deeply disappointed that the A's have chosen not to negotiate with the city of Oakland as a true partner in a way that respects the long relationship between the fans, the city, and the team. So, Mason, go off. Yeah, so lots of things for that are just going through my head. One, to the point that they're looking for $500 million in public funding in Nevada, something that this is seemingly a plan that just kind of came out of nowhere. Like we knew they were looking at L.A. As, as far back as two years ago on this podcast, Matthew and I, uh, when Matthew guest hosted while you were gone, we talked about potential relocation and expansion and all that. I think it was actually episode eight, episode eight, extravaga- expansion extravaganza for anyone who wants to go listen to that conversation. It was a really good conversation. Highly recommend it. But um, basically the main point out of that was that Major League Baseball told the A's to go and start looking at relocation because they weren't getting anywhere with their proposals in Oakland. There'd been like 30 of them. They've all fallen through for some reason or another. They want to start looking at other places to kind of leverage the city. Okay, so then fast forward a year. They were going and looking at places in Vegas. They were starting to talk with the city of Vegas to see if this would be something that could could happen. In the wake of the Raiders moving to Vegas and having success, the Golden Knights forming in Vegas and having success at drawing fans. So it kind of felt like this was maybe a move that was going to happen. Um, When the Raiders went to Vegas, the state and the city put together $750 million of public funding to help build that stadium. Now, that stadium is also shared with uh, UNLV. So it kind of makes sense that there's going to be public funding there because it's a public school. That won't necessarily be the case here, um, but there is kind of a thought or a thinking there that maybe they're going to get the money. 
at the same time, it doesn't really feel like there's a plan. It just feels right. like they've got land and they said, okay, new stadium, go build it. But what's the stadium going to look like? What's the transportation they're going to look like? It's not too far from the strip. I don't think that'd be all that difficult to figure out a transportation to it sort of thing. But it just kind of feels like a really haphazard announcement. That's absolutely what it is. And if we just fast forward, like if we rewind a little bit here, you even before the pursuit of Las Vegas, they had explored options in San Jose, Fremont, Laney College um, in Oakland, and then the Howard Terminal Project. Those were all like passing fancies, essentially. Like they would say like, oh, we, we cannot, we can only make it work here in Oakland or we can only make it work here. And they come up with these grand plans, especially in the case of the Howard Terminal, where it was going to be surrounded by like $12 billion in real estate properties that was going to supposedly bring all kinds of money into the city of Oakland. They were all just kind of like super far-fetched plans. And this one is even less fleshed out than, than the Howard terminal plan. There is no plan, honestly, other than we're going to spend this much money on the stadium and it's in this location. That's all they've got at this point. And, and if they learned anything from the NFL's relocations, uh, when you build a stadium, especially nowadays, it is 100% going to cost way more than you expect it to. The 100%. Rams SoFi Stadium that's shared by uh, the Rams and the Chargers now uh, was originally supposed to be, I think, a $3 billion stadium. It turned into a $6.5 billion stadium by the time it was all said and done from delays and just prices going up and all that. So $1.5 billion dollars. 500 billion or 500 million of public funding that's not going to go nearly as far as they think it's going to so what happens if there's overages who pays it is john fisher john fisher can afford it but he's probably not willing to pay it he's never he is, paid his players why is he going to do anything else yeah john fisher has consistently showed he is going to pay as little money as he possibly can for anything um yeah that's not going to change and if you know and like exactly like you're saying if you know anything about construction things don't go the way they are planned initially ever. Yeah. Well, and like without having like a full on plan, like renderings, uh, all your plans for um, like drainage and all that for the stadium, how can you realistically say one and a half billion dollars? Because this is Vegas. So the drainage is going to be a thing you have to look at, even though it doesn't rain. You're going to have to figure out how to get water there. You're going to have water. to figure out what water is absolutely critical yeah, for this. Exactly. And so there's so much that is going to go into this that is going to cost a lot of money to do in Vegas. So if one and a half billion dollars for a baseball stadium is a lot of money. It is. Baseball stadiums aren't nearly as big as and extravagant as football stadiums. But they're still expensive. This is probably going to have to be a dome. It's in Vegas Mm. in the summer. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, let's just talk about those kind of different pitfalls and potential draws maybe to Las Vegas as a as a host city for an MLB team, because it's absolutely a small market team. Oakland Mm. tries to pretend they're a small market, but in terms of like 
market size, media market size, it's very large. There's lots of people that live in Oakland. That's not really the case in Las Vegas, which is 40th in, uh, in, in America in terms of market size. It's below Milwaukee. So to give you like an idea of where they kind of fit. And, and that's, that's a big deal in the way that uh, these teams make money, essentially, because they will be like a, a revenue sharing participant. They'll be claiming a bunch of money. And I think that's kind of what John Fisher wants. He's OK moving to smart small market because it means that he has to, you know, chip in less. Yeah. Now, at the same time, the way that the media market is moving for MLB or for baseball right now, especially with uh, what is it? Diamond Sports Group, Bally Sports going under um, or being in not going under, but bankruptcy. They're going under, by the way. Um, But that's kind of accelerating the move to a different media strategy, which is going to be more based on streaming and less on cable packages. So maybe the whole regional uh, media doesn't matter as much. But in the current system, it's like stacked against them, sort of. Yes, in the current system, it is stacked against them. You do have the benefit of Vegas being such a tourist area. Like, the Golden Knights play 41 games a year in Vegas. They have fantastic draw. They're also a good team, so that helps. Um, The Raiders, for their eight or nine home games a year, get pretty good draw in Vegas because people are coming just to watch games at the stadium. They're coming to bet. They're coming to gamble, and there's they'll catch a game while they're there. All that good stuff. So you have people coming to the city that would also go to a game. Baseball, though, 81 home games. Are you going to get that same level of support? I do not think so. I I don't think it has near the draw of all the other attractions of Las Vegas. I mean, go to a football game. That's like a one in, you know, eight or nine in a season. It's like a huge event. Who is taking time out of their probably very short Vegas trips as tourists to go spend two and a half hours at a baseball game? You know, that's it probably in a in a dome. It's not even going to be like an outdoor venue. Yeah, like I get it for hockey because the stadiums are a lot smaller. You're not filling as large of an arena. So like filling a 30, 30 to 35,000 seat stadium, 81 times a year, that's going to be difficult. Filling a 20,000 or 18 or 20,000. I'm not sure what NHL uh, rink sizes are now, but I think they're probably around that 18 to 20. It's a lot easier to do. It's about half as many people. I would say like maybe initially the A's could see a lot of, um, people coming to their games just as a novelty kind of thing. But I think that could really wane because it's still the A's after all, if John Fisher runs them, anything like he has been since he took over, like he's not going to pour a whole bunch of money into this team just because they went to Vegas, even though that's what he's been claiming. I, I don't buy it for a second. Yeah, no, they'd have to have some kind of written agreement in the contract that if he's not spending in the top 10 in the league, that he is forced to sell the team. That's really the only way to get him to spend money is to force him to spend money. So we'll see. He's worth $2.4 billion outside of the club. Like the club is probably worth another 1.8 ish. Something. Yeah. Based on the going rate of major league clubs. 
Um, I think as actually as of last year, the median value of a franchise was about one point eight billion dollars. So. He's probably his two point four from mommy and daddy's money over at the gap. Um, plus one point eight for the franchise that he owns, like the dude's got money. Yep. And and he's the main problem here because there's this misconception that A's fans are not filling their ballpark. It's because the ballpark is like awful. It's not like a nice place to go at all. And the product is really poor. It's not because Oakland can't support like a major league team. They they have in the past. They were really popular in the seventies and eighties. They were more popular than the giants in fact, and they were really successful and they're, they're well run as well. Um, so it's, it's just, there's just this idea like, oh, they have to move. And I don't see that to be the case with, yeah. with the right kind of leadership and ownership. They could make it absolutely work where they are. Yeah. So there was a recent article on The Athletic that I was reading here a little bit ago, and they were actually talking about um, the uh, Mark Davis from the Raiders actually commented on this when this came out and he was furious and I, People don't like Mark Davis. I don't like Mark Davis. Dude needs a haircut. It's creepy. Um, But he was saying that he wanted to build a new stadium in Oakland. He really, really did. And there's a lot of things that support that. He wanted it to be in the spot of the Coliseum. There were plans for it. The city was on board. But the A's were not willing to approve it they were not willing to leave they were not willing to do to to vacate the that stadium to build one somewhere else so that they could build a new football stadium there john fisher kind of single-handedly forced the raiders to move because they couldn't get any other place in oakland to work for the football stadium which that you could blame mark uh, mark davis but then he kind of lost out on carson california so then he went to Vegas and got the team to move there. And now John Fisher can't get a deal done on Howard Terminal. He can't get a deal done on Laney College. He can't get a deal done on Fremont. He can't get one on San Jose because he wants to build the stadium and everything around it all at the same time so that he doesn't have to spend any money. He wants to buy the land and then sell the land and develop it so that he could pay for his stadium at the same time. You can't just magically develop 90 acres of property all at once and it be done in a year. That's like a 15 year project. Something has to be built first and everything else around it. The stadium first, everything else. You can't do it the way that this idiot wants to do it. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's so rough right now for for A's fans in Oakland and who who's gonna follow the A's? You know, like who's coming over from Oakland and gonna go be an A's fan and when they leave for Vegas? Like I don't think anybody. People. I think yeah. it's gonna be like what the, what San Diego Chargers and St. Louis Rams fans did. They're just gonna give up on the sport, really, or yeah. they'll find a new club. Right. If you're yeah. in St. Louis and you're still a, a football fan, you're now a Chiefs fan. You didn't follow the team. If you're in San Diego, you basically just gave up on the NFL. Like that's a pretty pretty like wide standing thing. So if you go into San Diego, there aren't football bars. Period. People don't watch the NFL. They have given up. 
Yeah. St. Louis so, did the same thing. Yeah. So that's what Oakland will do, or they will go across the Bay and become Giants fans. Yeah. And that's a good point. The Giants are going to have basically that entire region, the entire Bay is theirs at, mm-hmm. at the point when Oakland leaves. So Oakland. Ticket, ticket prices um, are going to go up over there at not Candlestick. What's it called? Oracle Park. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about the 2023 Oakland A's for a moment because, well, before we talk about a little bit of expansion talk here, but well, and the Rays, and the Rays, yeah. So the A's, they are just so bad right now. Um, they have five wins this season. They um, have a negative 100 something run differential in 25 games or so. So that means they're losing every game by an average of like four runs. Which is negative one oh two. Yes. And that's after they won a game last night. I wanted to I wanted to say one nice thing about the A's. And that's they won a game, they scored eleven runs, and they beat the Angels last night. Uh they had something that's never happened in Oakland history, and that was they had the same two guys hit back to back home runs two times within one game. Those two guys, Jesus Aguilar and Brent Rooker, who you talked about last week. I was actually going to guess Brent Rooker. Yeah. So, so they did it in the first inning. They did it in the third inning off uh, Jose Suarez. Brent Rooker is trying to play himself off of that team. Absolutely. And and that's like, I guess that's like the one one thing about Oakland baseball. You get to see like some of these reclamation kind of guys, these late breakouts that happen because they actually have opportunity to play on this really bad team. But yeah, yeah. Brent Rooker is like pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I, I want to kind of pivot just a little bit here. Cause like talking about relocation, like here a couple years ago, the A's weren't the only team we were talking about with relocation though. Like we were also talking about the Rays, the trop it, people aren't thrilled with the trop. It's, it's been there since 98 when the team was founded, it's been their home. It's, kind of just this weird building some people find it really beautiful and say the stadium's actually really nice but like the lighting's weird it's hard to get to all this stuff there's nothing around it and so mlb kind of said that we got to figure out what to do with oakland and in tampa before we can do any kind of expansion figure out any other clubs so i kind of wanted to just see if if there was even an update on the race like what's what's going on there and yeah, so St. Peter, right? Petersburg's mayor uh, announced the choice of the Rays and Heinz uh, bid for Tropicana Field redevelopment. Um, so they're basically going to be developing like the entire acreage around Tropicana Field because, like you said, there's not a whole lot around that area. So just make it like generally nicer. And uh, it seems like for right now, we we're going to still have the rays being in in St. Pete. Yeah, so they're going to build a new stadium next to the old stadium on the site, tear down the old one and develop the area around it to be similar to a lot of other um stadiums across the league. The kind of what um the Braves did with Truist Park and then building the battery, the area around it. What St. Louis is doing with Ballpark Village, what It's incredibly popular with Globe Life uh, Field. They've done the same thing around that area. Yep. And it makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of what they're planning on doing here. So 
assuming that this all gets fully approved, because this is not a full done deal yet, but it is kind of the plan that they're moving forward with that has buy-in from the city, has buy-in from the club. I assume the league is going to back it. Like, I'm not sure what the next step would be. Um, I, I think financing is the next step, but we'll see. Um, but if that's the case, then I think it's time that we start talking about expansion again, right? Because we potentially have a new stadium in, in Vegas if John Fisher doesn't screw it up like he does every other thing related to a stadium. New stadium development in Tampa. So we've kind of locked in two two teams that needed a home. Well, Manfred said a year ago he wanted to expand to 32 teams. So yeah. and, and it makes so much sense for MLB because it's very lucrative. There's a $2.2 billion fee that MLB collects for each expansion. So um, who is it going to be? There's several groups that are out there. Um, we can, and several other cities that don't have formal groups yet that are expected to be looked at. Right. So let's just talk about some of these groups and maybe we can uh, discuss kind of their merits as expansion locations. So the first one here, it's a really new, newly formed group, Big League Utah, which is um, headed up by Gail Miller, who is part of the, she was, I believe, married to the guy that owned the the jazz. Yes. So and so... The the Miller uh, the Larry H Miller uh, company, um, which obviously was founded by Larry Miller and his wife Gail, they owned the Utah Jazz uh, and a whole bunch of other businesses and stuff there in the Salt Lake area. Um, they divested uh, all of their ownership in the Jazz in 2020 and started getting into some other businesses. Well, now they are putting in a bid. Uh, they own the Salt Lake Bees. By, by the way, the AAA team for the Angels. Um, and they have started putting together a plan for bringing a major league club to Salt Lake, um, led by the uh, the Larry Miller company and Gale, and then bringing in a whole bunch of other people. Uh, Dale Murphy, um, former MVP for the Braves. And there was another player involved, a whole bunch of other rich people. Uh, the current owner of the Jazz is involved as well. Um and they're trying to bring in not just the MLB, but the NHL as well to Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City has been growing a ton recently um, as Denver. If you guys know anything about Denver, it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And now basically from Denver to Fort Collins is all just one city. And that is a large area. Um, well, it got so full and so expensive. People started going to Austin, Texas. People started going to Salt Lake City. People started going to Nashville. So you've had insane growth in the Salt Lake Provo region since 2010. It's now up to about 3 million people in the state or 3.3 million people in the state of Utah. 2.7 million of them all live in Salt Lake and Provo. So huge area. It's the 30th largest media market in the U.S. So it's already looking like a better option than Las Vegas would be um, for many reasons. One of them, yeah. one of the main reasons being media market and just like 
the the stream of incoming residents, you know, like people are not moving to Las Vegas right now. Yeah. This is also one of the youngest cities in the United States, along with uh, some of the highest uh, standard of living in the United States. So it kind of feels like a really good move just from that standpoint alone. Then you hear they already have a spot for the stadium. And it's on the west side of Salt Lake. I, I worked in Salt Lake a lot. Um, this is where the old power um, power plant was. It's on that site. That power plant is now defunct. They've been trying to figure out what to do with the 100 acres of land there. So the city is redeveloping it. And as part of that, they want to bring in two stadiums, a baseball stadium and a hockey stadium that would probably also bring the jazz out there as well. Um build a big entertainment district around it and call it the power district. Um, it's not too far from the airport. It's a really good location. Uh, it's really pretty, or it, it would be really pretty if they were to redevelop it, keep the stack or the uh, steam stacks. It could be really cool. Um, the city's already on board with doing that. They've set aside acres and acres of land for both stadiums in their plans for this. They're, they've hosted the Olympics. They're going to host the Olympics again. They've shown that they can support big sports. Um, they sell out for the Jazz consistently. They already have a AAA team that they support really well. Like The Salt Lake Bees draw about 7,000 fans per game. For AAA, it's really good. Um, and... So they're kind of playing around all of this and presented all of this basically in the last week. And they've done a really good job. I, I looked at um, some articles that they've done. I started looking at their website. They've done a really good job with it. So and it's owners that have owned professional sports teams before. They know what they're doing. Yeah. So, so you sound like you're, you are part of uh, Big League Utah yourself. I kind of think it's a good idea. Okay, so then I'll ask you, do you see any uh, drawbacks with this uh, as a potential location at this point? So I think the biggest drawback. I think the biggest drawback really is that it just doesn't really feel like it would be a baseball city. The The area around it outside of Salt Lake itself, I don't know how much of a um, how much of a market you're going to have there. Kind of just north of that, you start getting into. Uh, oh shoot! Now I got to think of what is it like? Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, kind of that region. It's not really a whole lot there. Northern Nevada, not really a whole lot of people there. So your entire market is Salt Lake and Provo. Period. Um, that might not be the best thing. It does kind of fill a hole and give a more local team for some of those areas. So they don't have to like travel all the way to Denver. They don't have to travel all the way down to Phoenix. Like it is a benefit there, but it does also feel like it's kind of just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. I agree with that. Okay. So a couple other ones that are different locations, music city baseball in Nashville. Um, We've written here that they partner with uh, Negro Leagues. Uh, what is it? Negro League Baseball Museum. Baseball Museum to preserve and revive history of Negro League. That sounds super cool. Um, I, I know uh, Dave Stewart is part of that group. Um, kind of a yeah. influential guy. 
And so this group is really, really big. I, I was looking at their website as well. Um, they've been kind of around for probably five, six, seven years now. I believe seems. Dave Dombrowski was part of it, right? At one point before he yes. took the Phillies job. Yes, he was. And now Don Mattingly's a part of it. The uh, Vanderbilt coach is a part of it. There's a whole bunch of people from the region there that are a part of this group. And they're trying to bring a kind of more sports and entertainment group to Nashville. They want to take on the name, the Nashville Stars, which was the name of the uh, Negro Leagues team from 1950 and 1951, along with kind of that barnstorming team from the area. There's a lot. There's a really rich history of the Negro Leagues there in Nashville. Um, Not really any um, like major league ball or. Uh, really minor league ball outside of the Nashville sound. Um, But there is a really, really big like history of baseball there that they want to bring back to the forefront. And so they're kind of doing some cool things with all of their pitches of bringing back that history and actually partnering with the Negro league baseball museum who they have a profit sharing agreement with, by the way. And it's something that Major League Baseball has been really promoting recently is bringing back the history of the Negro Leagues into the story of baseball in the public's eyes. So that seems like a really big draw to this group. They, as far as I'm aware, they don't have a site in mind necessarily yet. But you almost wonder with the sites, there's not usually a minor league and a major league team in the same city. So could they use the site of the Sounds ballpark, which I believe is a nice ballpark, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, they'd have to tear it down to build a bigger one, but right. yeah, it's that a nice ballpark. And, yeah. and Salt Lake has already said that they'll keep the bees if they get a major league club. Like, they're not. But there's like about no. That. Do they have any instance of like major league and minor league ballpark, like teams in the same city? I don't know of any. Tampa. Tampa. Tampa Tarpons, the Yankees right. minor leaguer. Um, yeah, like I think Triple A in major leagues, not usually, but there are other. The bees are a Triple A team, right? Yeah, and so are the Nashville Sound. Like that's the biggest thing, but it, like it, it makes sense for those to be the cities that you would potentially bring in as a major. Oh league. yeah, because they're the bigger cities usually. Because they're the bigger cities that have the more fans that show up. So it's like it's not as hard to get thirty or thirty thousand fans a game in Nashville when they're already pulling like 6,000 a game for a triple A team as opposed to going to Modesto where they get about a hundred fans a game. And now you're trying to pull 30,000. Yeah. And Nashville is just such an awesome location geographically because it fills definitely a void in that region of the country. You won't have to deal with a dome or a retractable roof like you might have to in Utah, which to me is a little bit of a drawback. Uh, And yeah. I don't know. Feels like that that one I could definitely see that one being one of the leading candidates. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, they've got a lot of support there. Um they've had people pretty high up in baseball that have been associated with it, including now Don Mattingly. Um they've been pushing for it for a long time and I think they have a pretty good bid, especially if you consider the fact that if you add two teams, the most logical way to do it is to put one in the East and one in the West. And that way you could pretty easily expand to, if you were to realign to an Eastern and Western conference sort of thing, it'd be pretty easy to just split it down the middle now and go 16, 16. Perfect. So 
Yeah, there, that's there's a, a lot that's of draw. That's a to good doing point that. about the conferences because with the American and National Leagues being like having the exact same rules, they're not really different in any way. They're conferences. Yeah. So, so like, there's a lot of there's a lot of reason to put it in Nashville, especially when you start figuring out realignment. Like it's, it's kind of perfect. Like geographically, it fills a whole schedule wise. It's a lot closer to get to a lot of the teams over there. than if you put one in you in Salt Lake city or in the next city, we're going to talk about in Portland, like then you're, you're getting teams closer together that are going to play more often. So it makes sense from a travel perspective as well. And then the final one's Portland, Portland diamond group is heading this project up. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about this, but this city is smaller than um, Salt Lake City. So that's potentially uh, an issue. Yeah. So this one is another one that's been kind of in talks for quite a few years. Um, Portland actually was trying to get the Expos when the Expos were moving uh, prior to the 2005 season. um, They put in a bid. They did not win it, obviously, because the nationals became a team. Um, but then when in 2006, the Marlins were starting to discuss potentially moving because they weren't doing well. Um, and Portland again, put in a bid. They ended up getting a new stadium in Miami and stayed there. So they lost out again. They've had minor league clubs up to triple a that have since been disbanded or moved. Um, this, the salt Lake bees actually were the, um, the Portland Beavers uh, and some other teams that have been through there. And so this is one of those that they've had baseball there a lot. They're a pretty small market, but this would kind of fill that big Pacific Northwest gap between Seattle and the, um, the, Bay. the Bay area. Cause that yeah. is a large expanse there. Like I, I think people underestimate how big that is, but like to drive from the Bay to, uh, Seattle, I think, is probably like a, almost a 10-hour drive, isn't it? Probably, yeah. Yeah, so there's a big gap there. It would give kind of more of a natural, uh, natural, oh, what do you call it, rival to Seattle. Um, Portland is really good at drawing regular fans, even with it being as small as it is. Like, they sold out Trailblazers games for, um, like, from 1977 to 1994. They sold out, like, every one. Um, they did a really, really good job of selling out, um, for the, uh, the Portland Timbers for uh, every game until the pandemic from when they started, they sold out. So like, this is a really good market for sports and they are rabid fans. Yeah. It's kind of, that's kind of brings up an interesting point about these smaller cities that have like one professional team. They usually seem to do pretty well. Like I'm thinking of Oklahoma City with the Thunder. They always like draw so many fans. And then the Jazz, the San Diego Padres, like, well, San Diego is a little bit different. <laughs> they haven't really drawn that many fans. But usually these like one team in town type cities usually do quite well. I don't know how bringing like a baseball team into the Utah mix is going to affect things. Or Portland. Yeah, that's... Honestly, I don't know. I, I really thought Portland had probably the best bid until now Salt Lake comes out and they 
they didn't just announce that they were thinking about it. They announced they were thinking about it with plans, with people, with investment. Like, it feels like they've got the entire bid already put together. And they did. They just made the announcement when Oakland said, hey, we think we're going to go build a stadium here. Because as soon as that domino actually falls with the Rays deciding that they're going to try and build a new stadium in Tampa, then it's it's um, races on to get a club. So it's the perfect time to announce it. And if you have a full on plan and investment, it's really, really attractive. So with uh, Portland Diamond Project really only having a couple of investors, Russell Wilson and Sierra are really big investors in that, by the way, um, along with the uh, guy who used to be uh, the CEO of Nike. And I forgot who the other one was. Um, and then a couple of smaller guys as well. Um, former players that local to the region. But they don't really have the investment there yet. They've got a lot of work to do. They've just been priming the way, paving the way for a bid. But it seems like Utah just came in and basically said, here's our bid. So it's it's going to be really intriguing to see how Manford reacts to that publicly. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't have all the details on how this process is going to unfold, but I'm very curious to see uh, what all these cities that we've mentioned and then other cities like Charlotte and who knows. I, I'm not sure what maybe, other cities are. Maybe Montreal. For. Like maybe, that's yeah. one that I think Major League Baseball would like to get back to. But I don't know if there's some really good bids at other towns like. Right. At the end of the day, it's whatever makes the most sense financially is going to be the one that that wins this this race here. So we'll keep you posted. Um, and yeah, and I think, like I said, go check out that old episode. It's it's going to be bad audio quality. I can promise you that right now. It was episode eight. So sorry about that. But the conversation was really good. Episode eight expansion extravaganza. Uh, that was from 2020, 2021, we started in 21. That was 2021, but we did do quite a bit talking about the expansion there that we didn't get into quite here. So. All right. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. Um, I think that's all we've got for you today and um, looking forward to talking to you next week. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and YouTube to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. Join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Getaway Day Pod. If you enjoy card collecting, check out our sister YouTube channel at Getaway Day Cards. 